The Trumpet Daily Program begins right now. Today's world news, what it means, where it's taking us. I bring you the one and only possible message of world peace. This is a message of hope, tremendous hope. And he said unto me, you must prophesy again. The Trumpet Daily Program begins right now. And to deliver much needed humanitarian assistance as well as food, water, medicine, shelter, and other aid to Ukrainians displaced by Russia's war. And provide aid for those seeking refuge in other countries from Ukraine. <clears throat> it's also going to help schools and hospitals open. It's going to allow pensions and social support to be paid to the Ukrainian people so they have something, something in their pocket. A significant moment on the world stage. President Biden met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky during this unannounced trip. He did notify the Russians that President Biden would be traveling to Kiev. We did so uh, some hours before his departure for deconfliction purposes. stands. Democracy stands. The Americas stands with you and the world stands. Freedom is priceless. It's worth fighting for for as long as it takes. And that's how long we're going to be with you, Mr. President, for as long as it takes. We'll do it. Thank you. It's extremely significant. The United States has wedded more to the Ukraine than ever before. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I go back to history and think of Roosevelt and Churchill. And uh, it's worth, I mean, mentioning Churchill because Zelensky has been called the Churchill of our generation. And Biden going there today, I think it's going to be a, a, a moment for the history books. There's your fake president in Ukraine today on President's Day of all days. He's uh, abroad. He's promising hundreds of millions more in aid. We've got to pay their pensions over there, after all. I mean, this is more than military aid. This is, uh, this is like the Marshall Plan. We're going to support them in the war against Russia and then rebuild the country. Why not? We can just keep printing the trillion, trillions and trillions of dollars, tens of billions for Ukraine, not one penny for Eastern Ohio. It's, it just seems perfect given the illegitimacy of this presidency. You're listening to Stephen Flurry. This is the Trumpet Daily. We appreciate you joining our growing audience. You can get to the live video stream of this show through our website, thetrumpet.com. Just go to thetrumpet.com forward slash live. Or as you see there on the lower third, just go trumpetdaily.com. Just type that into your URL. It takes you to the TD page that has the banner every day at 11 a.m. here in the central time zone of the United States so that you can listen live. Of course, you can go to the TD page and listen on demand as well. thought I'd dress down today in honor of President Zelensky. Actually, no. It's uh, President's Day. He, as I say, here in the United States, it's President's Day, which means no classes here at AC. So uh, the students are out at a work party 
this this morning, and then they've got some uh, some fun and games this afternoon, a movie night this evening. So a little bit of a of a play day as well as a work day here on uh, campus. And uh, we had a wonderful weekend in God's church, in God's work, and uh, lots to look forward to in the days and weeks ahead with uh, just some exciting developments that we'll hopefully be able to talk more about uh, real soon. So for the United States to assist or to provide financial aid to other nations, particularly when it's in our interests, when they're furthering U.S. interests abroad, like, for instance, in Israel, to, to put that money toward the Israeli military to fight against uh, American enemies. I mean, it's not like that's a big shock, but to go, to go abroad on President's Day, no less, and to, again, and you've heard this refrain over and over again, we've got to do this to fight for democracy. We've got to spread democracy. These same talking heads, by the way, just a few years ago when President Bush was trying to spread democracy in Iraq and elsewhere, they, they said, hey, it's a spectacular failure. You can't impose U.S. interests or, or, or U.S. policies on other nations. But that's what we want in Ukraine, I guess. I'll, I'll get to an article here in just a second about the Obama doctrine. And we'll see what Obama did or didn't do when Russia just waltzed right into uh, Crimea under his watch. How could, they, how could Joe Obama make such a sudden and abrupt change in foreign policy with respect to Ukraine? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're fundamentally transforming the United States of America, and we need a distraction. It's not to say that, that Vladimir Putin is, is not a tyrant or a dictator. He certainly is. He's a madman. But you can expect, just like walking across that courtyard area with the sirens blaring, there's no bombs anywhere near Kiev. As, as Sullivan said himself, we, we told Russia going in that Biden was going to be there. So they had to turn on the sirens because, well, it's theater. It's all for the cameras. I mean, he, it's Biden next to the modern-day Churchill. What a courageous... I mean, this is going to go down in the history books, said that one historian. The U.S. is wedded to Ukraine as never before. Jake Sullivan, he says the silent part out loud. The White House, no the White House notified Russia, the Kremlin, that Biden was going to make that stop into Kiev today. So there they are to turn on the sirens to make it seem like this is some courageous display coming from the fake president. And there he is to give hundreds of millions of dollars more. And he's never visited. He's never visited East Palestine. He, he, the FEMA, EPA, none of the government agencies. Buttigieg hasn't made a visit there either. No money promised, not one penny. How do you explain this? And no wonder Americans are sitting at home going, what is going on? What is, what is wrong with this presidency, with our leadership? with these people in Washington, D.C., in one rare moment of honesty. Listen to Andrea Mitchell as she, <laughs> as she confronts Kamala on uh, the unpopularity of Joe Biden and the vice president as well. This is clip three. Why do you think the president has such low popularity, favorable ratings, and you have even less favorable ratings? What do you think that is? I will tell you what I see when I'm out on the road. I see people thanking the president. It's not translating thanking our administration. Dozens of Democratic leaders are saying that 
they not only don't think that he's the strongest candidate, you know, considering the larger field that could be possible given his age and other defects, but they don't think that you are the right person to be on the ticket. Why do you think that? <laughs> That's a good question. Why do you think that? A lot of people don't like you and they don't like Joe Biden. Well, no wonder. There's nothing. There's no security, no, no money for the border, the southern border, and, and no money for the, the environmental disaster in Palestine. We're weeks into that disaster. A few pe Let me just finish off with AP before I get to this uh, Jeffrey Goldberg piece from years ago. The AP says regarding this surprise visit from the fake president, says the visit comes at a crucial moment. Biden is trying to keep allies unified and their support for Ukraine as the war is expected to intensify with spring offenses. Didn't Milley just say the war is over or at, le or at least that Russia lost? The war is expected to intensify. It says here Zelensky is pressing allies to speed up delivery of promised weapons systems and calling on the West to provide fighter jets as well, something that Biden has uh, declined to do. I'm sure he'll, he'll reverse course on that at some point, just like he did with the tanks. Tens of billions, all of this military hardware. And meanwhile, you have these reports of China now stepping up their support for Russia. I mean, they're, they're ramping it up. These people who used to be anti-war in most respects, Bernie Sanders, AOC, all of them, but not now. You had Kamala Harris at this Munich security conference over the weekend basically saying, not basically, accusing Russia of committing war crimes, crimes against humanity. I mean, there's no going back here. This is both sides digging in their heels. Is Russia going to suddenly pull back and, and, and call for some kind of truce or ceasefire when you've got the United States of America saying they've already committed crimes against humanity? I mean, that's something that you would typically uh, say after the fact, after hostilities have ended. But not now, not with this administration. Send them money, send them ammunition, send them missiles, send them tanks, and tell them as soon as this is over, you're guilty. You're guilty of war crimes. You know, the thing about how different it was in 2014, that's before Donald Trump. That's before the radical left. That's before the radical left just blew up this Russian boogeyman. He, Vladimir Putin is public enemy number one. Never mind China. We've just got to take down the bad orange man. And they've run with that narrative ever, ever since. This is just from 2014, less than 10 years ago. A few people on social media pulled up this from the archives. April 2016, Jeffrey Goldberg on the Obama Doctrine. This is right near the end of Obama's second term as president. It says Russia's invasion of Crimea in early 2014 and its decision to use force to buttress the role of its client Bashar al-Assad have been cited by Obama's critics as proof that the post-red line world no longer fears America. Obama didn't follow through on his red line promise over Syria and so Goldberg says to Obama toward the end of his, his second term, hey, I mean, doesn't this suggest you've got Russia waltzing into Crimea? I mean, doesn't this suggest that the world no longer fears America? 
says, so when I talked with the president in the Oval Office in late January, I again raised this question of deterrent credibility. The argument is made, I said, that Vladimir Putin watched you in Syria and thought he's too logical, he's too rational, he's too into retrenchment. I mean, this is a left-wing writer, of course. I'm going to push him a little, a bit further, in Ukraine. It says, Putin acted in Ukraine in response to a client state that was about to slip out of his grasp, and he improvised in a way to hang on to control, hang on to his control there, said Obama. He's done the exact same thing in Syria at enormous cost to the well-being of his own country. Putin's making all these advances, and Obama was there, who did nothing, by the way. Obama was there to say, you know, those advances that Putin is making, it's, it's really hurt his country. And we've done the right, thing, the right thing by not doing anything. It says here, and the notion that some, this is quoting Obama, the notion that somehow Russia is in a stronger position now in Syria or in Ukraine than they were before they invaded Ukraine, uh, before they invaded Ukraine or before he had, de had to deploy military forces to Syria, is to fundamentally misunderstand the nature of power in foreign affairs or in the world generally. Look, I'm Obama. If I sit back and say, help yourself to Crimea, then just know I'm right, okay? And of course, Goldberg is there to say, yes, sir, absolutely. He swoons. They all swooned. Whatever Obama did was the right thing to do. But look at how different the approach was then as compared to today. Today, I mean, the sirens are going off as Biden pays a visit to Kiev. How many times has he been there? Seven, eight, nine times. He loves him some Ukraine. You know why. He's right in step with the oligarchs. He's making money hand over fist. And the radical left needs, they need the Russian boogeyman to keep people from focusing on Palestine or the southern border or rising inflation or pick your problem in the United States of America. Obama's theory, Goldberg says, is simple. Ukraine is a core Russian interest, but not an American one. Not an American interest in 2016. This was when the article was printed. So Russia will always be able to maintain escalatory dominance there. It quotes Obama finally. The fact, that, the fact is that Ukraine, which is a non-NATO country, is going to be vulnerable to military domination by Russia, no matter what we do, said Obama in 2016. Look, they're always going to be kind of like a client state for Russia. It's not in our, it's not in our interest, really, to be that involved. Well, try telling that to Joe Obama today. They're nowhere to be found in Palestine, as I say. Joe Biden... Pete Buttigieg, he's the transportation secretary. You had the guy at Norfolk Southern. He was going to come in for the, the town hall. He bails. The EPA chief, he finally made a visit, I think, last Thursday. And then he's out of town the next day because, well, he's got to leave on Saturday for Sierra Leone. He's heading over there with the celebrities because of, well, climate change. Climate change. That's a serious, serious. Go to Africa. Go to sub-Saharan Africa and try to, try to solve the climate change problem. This is from uh, The Grio. It says, actor and humanitarian Idris Elba and his wife Sabrina Elba will accompany EPA Administrator Michael Regan. He's the one that was just in Palestine on Thursday 
to Sub-Saharan Africa. The NAACP and Golden Globe award-winning star Mrs. Elba and Regan will travel to Ghana and Sierra Leone to focus on the issue of climate change and ways to combat its devastating ripple effects around the globe. Here they've got this, this environmental disaster going on now in real time. And they're off on this uh, African venture for a week. Oh, it took them almost two weeks to get to Palestine. There for a day and then off to the airport. This is amazing. <laughs> and meanwhile, you've got the EPA chief. Just as he concluded his trip, he comes in there and says, hey, water and, water and air is safe. It's safe. And then he has, he has this exchange with a CNN host on uh, the same day or the next day. I think this is from Friday last week, clip five. So I understand this is ongoing, and I know that you understand for the folks on the ground, they get that, but they also need real answers. This has been a really difficult two weeks for them. Do you have any sense, given that, in your words, this is an ongoing cleanup, can you give them any sort of a timeline when you believe you can say to them definitively, it's safe? You know, uh, Erica, what I'd say is this is a fresh accident. Uh, we understand the community's angst. We are on the ground. We will conduct the cleanup. But we have to be able to get in and do the assessment. So mm -hmm. as the conditions on the ground become safe so that we can put our scientists and engineers uh, not in harm's way, but in a position where they could do their work. What, what a different message than what he said initially. Yeah, the air, the water is just fine. And then she says, well, what about you, you know, getting your guys in there to conduct all the tests to make sure you can set everyone's mind at ease? He says, well, the conditions need to be safe before we can send our guys in. So let the East Palestine residents just die of cancer, I guess. And when things settle down, then we'll send in the EPA. We can't do it now. I mean, we don't want to put our EPA guys in harm's way. Can you believe this? And then he heads off to Sierra Leone. You can't make this up. No wonder. No wonder ordinary Americans say, yeah, would rather not have Biden again, would rather not have Kamala. Don't want any of them. Just get rid of the whole administration. It's fake and illegitimate anyway. Not, it's safe enough for the, the Palestine citizens, but not for the EPA. Donald Trump, same day, he announces, okay, I'm going to go and visit Palestine. Donald Trump. I mean, this tells you something about the way Americans view leadership in the United States. They see Donald Trump as the real president. Because as soon as he makes the announcement, oh, FEMA said, we got to get into Palestine. The Norfolk Southern guy says, I got to get in there and see the people of Palestine. I mean, they're following Trump's lead. Trump says, I'll go. The people rejoice. And then here you have all of these others coming along now trying to save face. PJ Media says the environmental disaster in East Palestine, Ohio, was bizarrely ignored by the Biden administration for weeks. Governor Mike DeWine reportedly had repeatedly requested assistance from FEMA, but those requests were denied. How do you deny their requests? It's a disaster zone. There's a cancer cloud floating around the Northeast says, however, on Friday, Donald Trump announced his intention to visit East Palestine the following week. And within two hours, <laughs> within two hours, it was announced that FEMA would, in fact, come to assist the people of East Palestine. 
Here's a little montage we put together just summarizing some of these events. Clip one. When you see that, Ashley, after hearing what you just told me about the headaches and the sore throats, do you feel your your town is, is, is safe? I don't feel like uh, we are safe just because we haven't seen those results and the air monitors that were there from the beginning are now in bags. Uh, they haven't been reading since the town hall, February 15th. We haven't actually seen any reads from any of those houses and the chemicals that they've measured. Earlier tonight, Trump announced he would visit East Palestine next week to meet with those residents. And coincidentally enough, FEMA almost immediately reversed their decision and announced the deployment of a small team to the toxic town two whole weeks later. Finally, FEMA is there. Do you feel like our leaders are doing enough to help you all with, with this problem? Um, no, I don't. I mean, now that they are here, I hope that they do try their best, but they should have been here probably like two weeks ago. Meanwhile, Biden's in Kiev saying, we'll do whatever it takes to stay. We're in it for the long haul. However long this takes, however much money you need. Hey, we're going to pay your pensions. We're going to rebuild your country. We're going to rebuild Ukraine and not even visit Palestine. This PJ Media piece, FEMA and the state of Ohio have been in constant contact regarding emergency operations in East Palestine. U.S. EPA and Ohio EPA have been working together since day one. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and FEMA Regional Administrator Thomas Silvach said in a statement. So they're coming out. They're having to say, hey, hold on a second. Everything's working out fine. We've got some good relations here. It's not true. It says it was hard to ignore the timing. Speaking of Donald Trump's statement and then FEMA finally saying, OK, we'll go all in. And while some might argue that Biden, the Biden administration's change of heart was a coincidence, Donald Trump is taking credit for it, as you expect from Trump. He finally does something and then everyone else follows his lead. Pretty amazing uh, development. No wonder. No wonder so many people have lost faith in their government. No wonder so many people have lost faith in the media, the free press, that's supposed to be exposing, exposing this kind of betrayal, betrayal against your own people. The Irish Times, Matthew Iglesias, he had a pretty bizarre and kind of stupid take on people's distrust of the media. He's in media, so he answers that. These polls that are saying, we don't trust you. You just tell lies. You just spread lies. Maybe before I get to his piece, I can play you this from from Glenn Greenwald over the weekend uh, about the public's mistrust of media. This is clip four. You know, every poll shows that there's basically no institution more hated and less trusted than the corporate media, and they sit around complaining about all that, uh, that all the time. They whine that it's unfair. They, they they insist that they deserve respect. They blame everybody else, and they never ever look in the mirror and ask why is it that we have lost the faith and trust of the American people? Because if they did, they would realize that the answer is staring right at them in that mirror. They're the reasons why people no longer trust them because they lie continuously. What they though do though. All of those lies that you just showed them saying right before the election that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation, everybody knows now that's a lie because the New York Times and everybody else has authenticated those documents. And not one of those media outlets, Dan, not one, 
has gone back and retracted their lies, has accounted for them, has explained them, has acknowledged the subsequent evidence disproving them. And that shows you that lying is not something they do because they're incompetent. It shows you that lying is their actual function. They're not apologizing because they did their job. It's not about incompetence. This is their job. It's their job to lie. It's their job to create false narratives for the greater good, like they did with the Hunter laptop in 2020. This Iglesias fellow over at the Irish Times, he, he feels like the state of Western media today is better than ever. It's better than ever, he says, because, well, at least when they make mistakes, you hear about it now. And it used to be that you didn't hear about it. Yeah, but where's the apologies, as, Gle as Greenwald points out there, when they're exposed as frauds, when everyone now knows that Hunter's laptop is legit, why aren't they lining up to say, you know what, we got it wrong, and we, we apologize. It wasn't the truth. They don't apologize because that was their job, to deceive. This Irish Times piece, it says here, why is trust in the media declining? Maybe it's not us. Maybe it's you. <laughs> Maybe you're the problem. You, the dear reader, Maybe, you, maybe you're the one who has the problem here. Maybe you should trust us, no matter what we say. That's what they want, of course. Distrust in media, distrusting the elites, distrusting government, here again, <laughs> in a rare case of some honesty in journalism. Listen to, to Margaret Brennan's uh, exchange with Bernie Sanders, just pointing out the obvious hypocrisy that everyone knows about, but you listen to his response, and we're supposed to say, okay, not along, and just go along. I mean, look, I'm only doing what the system requires me to do. But in fact, I'm a, I'm a good socialist, and I want to get rid of capitalism. This is clip two. But I have to ask you, you're going on tour to promote this book, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. And you're here talking about it. I understand we're not the bad guys you're, you're describing in the book when it comes to the media. But tickets for your tour apparently are selling for $95 on Ticketmaster, which is con accused of anti-competitive behavior. You know that. Some of your Democrats are criticizing them. Aren't you benefiting yourself no, from this I, system that you're all, trying to dismantle? First of all, those decisions are made totally by the publisher and the bookseller throwing the book for free. And we're doing a number of free uh, events, but I don't make a nickel out of these things at all. But you're okay doing business with Ticketmaster? No, not particularly, but that's, again, I have nothing to do with that. That is, if you wrote a book, probably be the same process. Mm -hmm. So you have to operate within the system? I do. Of course. Of course he does. <laughs> I do. I do have to operate, operate within the system. Everything's good. The, the, she asked him specifically, aren't you benefiting yourself from this system that you're trying to dismantle? And his, his response, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Here's a multimillionaire with, again, multiple homes, benefiting from the system, and telling the camera, telling you, no, I'm not benefiting from the system. I want to dismantle capitalism. I'm just doing what you know my book publisher tells me I need to do. You'd do the same thing, Margaret. These people are out of touch with ordinary, ordinary Americans. No wonder they're so incredibly unpopular. It's so obvious, isn't it, that they're illegitimate? It's so obvious, isn't it, that they stole the election in 2020? Is this what most in, in, in the United States want, the people of the United States? Do they want their leaders over in Kiev and Munich 
talking about how Russia is guilty of, of war crimes and we want to give tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine and we want to secure the border of Ukraine and we want to be in it for the long haul and pay off all their pensions. Is that what any country would want of its leaders? It, particularly when you've got a cancer cloud floating over eastern Ohio and a wide open southern border with six million illegals pouring into the country Nations don't survive this way. This is how they die. Speaking of that stolen election, Raheem Kassam, he's gone through court documents from this Fox News versus Dominion. Dominion, of course, is the maker of the machines, the machines that Mike Lindell says we need to get rid of entirely because they're unreliable. You can't count on them. Once the dust settled from 2020, Dominion comes out with this lawsuit against Fox News. I think, I think most of it had to do with Tucker Carlson interviewing Sidney Powell. That's a no-no. You can't bring Sidney Powell onto your show because she's a, she's a conspiracy theorist. And she ruined our reputation, says Dominion. And so Kassam, he's gone through all of these court documents, the discovery, and comes to find out that a lot of people working at Dominion themselves said that the machines were unreliable. This is from uh, Kassam's take. It says, Discovery in this case has revealed that Dominion's own employees expressed serious concerns about the security of its machines. Mark Beckstrand, a Dominion sales manager, confirmed that other parties, quote, have gotten a hold of Dominion's equipment illicitly in the past. Beckstrand identified specific instances in Georgia and North Carolina and testified that a Dominion machine was hacked in Michigan. Beckstrand confirmed that these security failures were reported about in the news. Yeah, they've confirmed it. They, they are, I mean, it, it is true that people hacked into them. I mean, this is something that all the Democrats were warning about, of course, before 2020. Now, you know, mum's the word. Don't say anything about the machines. Don't, don't say anything about an election being tampered with, certainly not stolen. It was rigged. It was rigged in, in a dozen different ways. The mules, the FBI, the DOJ, the Hunter laptop, the cover-up, the machines. Yes, the machines. Says Eric Coom Coomer. We've talked about him before on this show. He lamented that almost all of Dominion's technological failings were due to our complete messing up the installation. Coomer email. He went on to note, it does not get much worse than that. Further on, internal Dominion documents likewise confirm that Dominion machines suffered several potential glitches in the November 2020 election after a security expert told the media that Dominion software should be designed to detect and prevent this kind of glitch. It says further on, likewise, in the immediate aftermath of the election, Dominion received complaints from jurisdictions in Georgia noting irregularities with machine counts that required Dominion's employees to reprogram the machines. So this is just discovery from the, the case and all of these irregularities. Raheem Kassan just going through the documents. Here's what it actually says. Who knows how the case is going to turn out, but it seems like Fox would, would have a pretty good case. But we'll see. I guess it depends these days on what kind of judge it goes before. In any event, 
if you had an honest media, you see, these are the kinds of stories. It takes Raheem Kassam. He, he's far to the right. He's conservative media. You know, he's kind of into the conspiracies because of what he says about the 2020 election. And so this kind of story just doesn't get any coverage because the media are corrupt. The media are part of the problem. And nobody trusts them. We noticed just before coming to air today, there was this story saying, I think uh, Kevin McCarthy has gotten some flack now that it's been five, six weeks since winning the speakership. He came out and said, yeah, all the January 6th footage, we're going to release that. And so you had Julie Kelly and some others on the right saying, um, when's that going to happen? When are we going to see that footage? We're anxious. We're eager. This was just from earlier today. Exclusive, McCarthy gives Tucker Carlson access to trove of January 6th riot tape. Well, he's the right guy to give it to. He's the one that made the documentary showing that it was not an insurrection. It was a fedsurrection. And so now Tucker's producers get to go through this additional footage. Finally, finally, and we'll see what comes from that. There have been some other revelations about January 6th that we just haven't even had time to really get into on this show. But we'll try to keep you abreast in the coming days and weeks ahead. This final piece that I'll just refer you to, refer you to uh, we know about the radical left and how that they're doing everything that they can to blot out Israel's history, to blot out our, our foundational institutions. This is from PJ Media. It says, the UK's prevent program, which is supposed to be protecting the sceptered isle from terrorism, recently came under fire for treating actual Islamic terrorism as if it were a mental illness. But that doesn't mean that PREVENT has been wanting for terrorists, like its counterparts in the FBI. It has kept busy looking for far-right extremists and has now published a helpful guide to spotting those dangerous right-wingers. It turns out that there are people who read Beowulf, Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, 1984, George Orwell's, and other great works of English literature. See, if you're steeped in English literature, our traditions, in the literary field, then chances are you're, you're racist or far-right or both. It says you'd almost get the idea that the leftist culture warriors who control prevent uh, Britain as a whole and the U.S. as well, want to destroy the civilization of which those works and writers are a hallmark. And you'd be right. You'd be right. That's 2 Kings 14 right there. That's the devil behind this movement to blot out even the name, even the name of Israel. It says, Prevent casts a wide net. The U.K.'s Daily Mail reported Friday that among the potential signs of far-right extremism, the key texts for white nationalist supremacists that prevent flagged were the comedies, yes, ministered the thick of it, the 1955 epic war film, the dam busters, and even the complete works of William Shakespeare. <laughs> Shakespeare, the far-right extremist. You can't make these stories up. Comes right out from the Daily Mail, PJ Media, and the like. When we come back, we'll conclude today's show with our Bible study segment. You're listening to Stephen Flurry, and this is the Trumpet Daily. If you'd like to submit some feedback to the show, you can email us, td at thetrumpet.com. We'll be right back. The Trumpet Daily. 
What has happened to the United States of America? The wealthiest, most powerful nation in human history is suddenly divided, weakened, radical. The evil in America has grown powerful. The good has grown weak. The honorable parts of American history are succumbing to a direct, targeted, sustained assault. Someone, something is dismantling America's history, purpose, and character. Fundamentally transforming the United States of America. Political dysfunction, social strife, economic peril, catastrophic moral failure, fires, attacks, riots, lies. The nation is being attacked from within by its own leaders. Powerful elites in government, journalism, academia, and beyond are intentionally, rapidly destroying what America is in order to make it into something else. There is a reason why your nation is crumbling before your eyes. There is a spirit and a specific perpetrator that is attempting to blot out America. Only America Under Attack reveals that perpetrator and the motive and spirit behind him. This newly expanded book shows you the reason why America has changed so dramatically, so suddenly. If you're confused and concerned about what is happening to America, request your free copy of America Under Attack by Gerald Flurry at thetrumpet.com. The Trumpet Daily. On this uh, President's Day, this would uh, be a good time, as good time as any, to, uh, to think about qualities of true leadership. It's obviously something that uh, is mentioned quite a lot in the Bible, and there's also quite a few examples of poor leadership as well. In fact, it's prophesied in Isaiah 3 that in the last days, God would actually take away the true leaders from our Israelite nations, and we're certainly seeing that today. I mentioned in the first segment uh, just the example of Donald Trump. I'm going to Palestine, and then, of course, the others kind of line up and say, oh, well, we better get up there too then. We don't want to look bad. That's the way it is in Israel today. So much weakness, so many people who lack courage. You see, as I say, examples of quality, courageous leadership all throughout the Bible. And you see, you see quite a lot of it in, in America's and, and Britain's history as well. 1 Samuel 17 in verse 4, this speaks of David. Of course, a young David was, was courageous enough to fight against a lion and a bear, just to save little sheep, just to, sa to save animals. He went on the offensive. Here in 1 Samuel 17, 4, it says, And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath, whose height was six cubits and a span. So here was this towering monster, this giant of a man, literally, and, and he was just terrorizing the, the soldiers of Israel, the army of Israel, verse 10, and the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Here they were just cowering in fear. They lacked courage. They lacked faith in God. Verse 19 says, Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench 
as the host was going forth to fight and shouted for the battle. So here's this young man, this courageous young man who was eager to help the troops. He got up early at his dad's request and went off to support his brothers and others in the army of Israel. We'll just drop down to verse 27. Don't have time to read the entire passage, but I'd encourage you to do that later on your own time. It says, And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So well, David, of course, is asking, what, what happens? You know, what shall be done to the man who kills this giant? He didn't seem very fearful of Goliath. The people answered David and said, So shall it be done to the man that kills him. And Eliab, his uh, eldest brother, heard when he spoke unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David and said, Why came you down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I mean, you're a nobody. You're a sheep herder. You're nothing more than a shepherd. So who did you leave the sheep with? You need to get back into the wilderness. You don't belong in the battlefield. I know your pride, his brother said, and the naughtiness of your heart, for you are come down that you might see the battle. That's the reaction of one of David's older brothers. He said to David, you're full of pride. You're not here for the wrong reasons. You don't, you don't have a fighting spirit. You don't have the courage to be out here. Verse 29, And David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? Isn't there a reason to fight here? Isn't there a reason, a good cause, to stand up to this menace? To stand up to this, this giant of a man? This, this enemy of God's? In the Overcomer booklet, my father says this, Realize that everything God gives us will be stripped from us if we're not willing to put our life on the line. We've, we've made this point so many times before, the importance of the virtue courage. My father in Malachi's message saying that without courage, the other virtues are of little value because you've got to have the courage to be able to fight. To be able to fight for what God gives to you. Otherwise, it's just, it's just going to be stripped away. The devil will just devour you and take everything away from you. As I say, you can see good examples of courageous leadership. Obviously, you can see it in the Bible, but even in our own history. And here on President's Day, we're coming up to George Washington's birthday, I think it is, in a couple of days. But what a man of courage George Washington was. A man of God, too. A God-fearing man. He didn't understand the truth about God's purpose and plan. But he certainly was a humble man. And he was a man of action as well. He had so many outstanding character traits, one of which was the, the giant-slaying leadership that King David displayed. George Washington said, It is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. When have you heard such a statement coming from the elites of Israel today? This is George Washington in the 1700s. It's impossible without God and the Bible. You can't lead. You can't fight giants. You, you can't really be courageous and bold. It's Washington, of course, who reverently added the words, so help me God, to his presidential oath. He, of course, was the first president of the United States. And here again, imagine a leader today saying, yeah, like, uh, I like this oath, but can we add, so help me God? He did. 
So help me God. This is what he said in his inaugural address on April 30th, 1789. He said, the foundations of our national policy will be laid in the pure and immutable principles of private morality. You see the way Washington viewed it and the way so many of the founders did. Uh, private morality was not some sort of peripheral issue that really shouldn't come up in a campaign or whatever. It's, it's right out front. I mean, how you behave privately, that has everything to do with what kind of leader you'll be out front publicly. Character matters, in other words. We have a wonderful little booklet. I didn't bring it up here today. Character in crisis. That's what we see in our world today. A crisis in character. There's no character. You can call our operators today for a free copy of this little booklet. Powerful little booklet. We wrote it <laughs> over 20 years ago. And look at where we are today. It's so much worse. The 800 number, 1-866-930-3024. Washington had some disadvantages as a young boy. His, his father died when he was just 10 years of age. And you hear about how he spoke of his mother. He said, my revered mother, honored madam, the love, the respect that he had for his, his parents. Think about the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. And he did do that. He did that when asked how he raised such a remarkable son. George Washington's mom is reported to have said, I taught him to obey and, well, you can see in the way he addressed her, my revered uh, mother. You see that in some of the writings of Washington. He obeyed her. He honored her. He became a national hero. He reluctantly accepted his position, heading up those Continental forces, resisting against the British and so on, signed the U.S. Constitution, and on and on it goes, and you look at the movement today, this Marxist revolution that we're seeing play out in the United States, and, well, they want to tear down statues of Washington. They want to destroy the foundation of this country. This is from uh, David McCullough's book, 1776, if I'm not mistaken. I think he died recently, the great historian. He wrote in 1776 that Washington was one of those rare few who, under fire, were without fear, fearless, courageous, bold. It says here, Washington, no danger, this is quoting Washington, no danger is to be considered when put in, comp in competition with the magnitude of the cause. See, is there not a cause? Just like David said, just like David told his brother, you're here because of your vanity, your pride. And David said, isn't there a cause to fight? Washington thought, well, there's no danger as long as the cause is significant enough. If, if it's important, then who cares about the danger? You've got to fight. It says, Washington, this is McCullough, Washington was not a brilliant strategist or tactician, not a gifted orator, not an intellectual. It says, as at, at severely crucial moments, he had shown marked, marked indecisiveness. He had made serious mistakes in judgment. But experience had been his great teacher from boyhood, and in this, his greatest test, he learned steadily from experience. Above all, Washington never forgot what was at stake, and he never gave up. 
It says, without Washington's leadership and unrelenting perseverance, the revolution almost certainly would have failed. Without Washington, the revolution almost certainly would have failed. Without Washington, there, there, almost certainly there would be no United States of America. That's what kind of courageous leadership we're talking about here. President Trump, we've played some of these clips before on this show, he spoke of America's founders in one of his most memorable speeches at Mount Rushmore in the summer of 2020. Here's clip seven. Our people have a great memory. They will never forget the destruction of statues and monuments to George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses S. Grant, abolitionists, and many others. The violent mayhem we have seen in the streets and cities that are run by liberal Democrats in every case is the predictable result of years of extreme indoctrination and bias in education, journalism, and other cultural institutions. Against every law of society and nature, our children are taught in school to hate their own country and to believe that the men and women who built it were not heroes, but that were villains. That's uh, President Trump from July 3rd, 2020. Uh, I've mentioned to the students and our campers at SEP camps over the years just how how Herbert Armstrong, you know, our, our founding father in so many ways, how that when he was a young man, he was poring over biographies about the founders, Washington, Ben Franklin, Abraham Lincoln. He wasn't one of the founders, but uh, one of the greatest presidents, nonetheless. Steeped in the, the teachings, or at least the history, of those great individuals of, of our history, great presidents of old, in the case of Lincoln and Washington, this is from uh, an article Mr. Armstrong wrote back in 1965. He said, God raised up George Washington and Benjamin Franklin for their part in making the United States a separate independent nation and in presenting, the nation, in presenting that nation during its infancy. God raised these individuals up. And you can look into the Bible and see just how important it is to remind our young people of their history, to point them back to... Uh, the beginning, in the case of knowing the Bible, knowing Israelite history, knowing the, the laws of God, God admonished parents over in Deuteronomy 6 to really be with their children right when they get up in the morning, when they're walking by the way, when they're putting them, putting them to bed at night, to teach them these things. Listen again to Donald Trump from the summer of 2020, clip 8. The radical view of American history is a web of lies. All perspective is removed. Every virtue is obscured. Every motive is twisted. Every fact is distorted. And every flaw is magnified until the history is purged and the record is disfigured beyond all recognition. This movement is openly attacking the legacies of every person on Mount Rushmore. They defile the memory of Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Roosevelt. Today, 
we will set history and history's records straight. And then in that speech, he proceeded to go through one founder after another. Here's what he said about George Washington, clip nine. From head to toe, George Washington represented the strength, grace, and dignity of the American people. From a small volunteer force of citizen farmers, he created the Continental Army out of nothing and rallied them to stand against the most powerful military on Earth. Through eight long years, through the brutal winter at Valley Forge, through setback after setback on the field of battle, he led those patriots to ultimate triumph. When the Army had dwindled to a few thousand men at Christmas of 1776, when defeat seemed absolutely certain, he took what remained of his forces on a daring nighttime crossing of the Delaware River. They marched through nine miles of frigid darkness, many without boots on their feet, leaving a trail of blood in the snow. In the morning, they seized victory at Trenton. After forcing the surrender of the most powerful empire on the planet, at Yorktown, General Washington did not claim power but simply returned to Mount Vernon as a private citizen. Nathaniel Green said of Washington, His Excellency George Washington never appeared to so much advantage as in the hour of distress. That's when he really showed the most courage, when it was the most difficult. McCullough says this in his book, From the last week of August to the last week of December, the year 1776 had been as dark a time as those devoted to the American cause had ever known, indeed, as dark a time as any in the history of the country. And suddenly, miraculously, it seemed, that had changed because of a small band of determined men and their leader. That would be those determined men led by America's first president, George Washington. You're listening to Stephen Flurry, and this is the Trumpet Daily. We certainly appreciate you joining us on today's show, and we'll look forward to seeing you again tomorrow.